Coming up in this podcast, waste to energy development, Port Hedland property, Airbnb regulations, unemployment, tech listings, and our special report on WA's biggest exporters. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Uh, Mark, a big waste to energy project has been announced at Quinana. What are the details there? Well, this is a very significant development, both in its scale and for the fact that Western Australia will be home to this country's very first waste to energy plant. This is the kind of thing that's uh, quite common in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, People have been talking about it here uh, for many years. In fact, Phoenix Energy has been working on this particular project for nearly a decade. The Macquarie Capital has come in along with a a, a European investment group called DIF, used to be the Dutch Infrastructure Fund. They're going to be bankrolling this project. $670 million is the total cost, Um, 800 construction jobs. Essentially, they'll be taking about 400,000 tonnes of household waste Mm -hmm. and feeding it into this facility and producing about 36 megawatts of power. They're addressing uh, what's been a long-running issue in Perth. A lot of waste goes off to landfill every year, dumped in landfill. Um, Governments and others have spoken about this um, for donkey's years and not achieved a great deal. In fact, a few numbers just for context around this. Uh, Every year in WA, we produce a bit over 5 million tonnes of waste. Um, Less than half of that is recycled. And of the amount that's recycled, these figures are from 2015-16, the most recent, about 31% of what's recycled actually gets sent overseas. And the biggest market has been China. Right. But they've been shutting the door, haven't they? Exactly. So there's actually a crisis in the waste management industry because China said, no, well, look, we're not going to take all of your dirty waste mm-hmm. and, and process it ourselves. You can sort it out. So around the country, there are big stockpiles of waste building up. People are wondering what to do about it. And this is on top of the fact that um, nearly a million tonnes of household waste goes to, into landfill every year. So into this situation, the private sector has stepped in, done a deal with a bunch of local councils, and said, we'll take your waste, we'll put it into this new facility, and we'll produce power and sell it into the grid. Yeah, okay. So very exciting development. And there's actually a second group, um, New Energy Corporation is a local company headed up by Enzo Galotti. Uh, they've got backing from a very large European group called Hitachi Zosen. They're planning a very similar facility. They want to process about 300,000 tonnes of waste. So you know, Perth could be a leader in Australia in developments in this sector. And I, I presume, I mean, given, as you say, the technology's pretty mature in the Northern Hemisphere, I presume we haven't got it here because it's just been cheap and easy enough to do landfill and other things. Uh, that's a part of it, yep. And there's also been this sense that these things are perceived as giant incinerators. So there's a bit of environmental sensitivity around them. But look, the EPA, uh, put this through a very rigorous review and they said it's all okay to go ahead. Now, interesting uh, follow-up to the report we ran on Friday morning, the state government has said that they're still doing some regulatory reviews around this project. The issue they've got is that they would like more waste to be either 
um, you know, reused or recycled in some other way. They're saying, you know, let's not just throw it into this waste to energy plant, let's try and do more um, what they would call high level recycling. So there's a, an element of uncertainty there about how this is going to work. And that actually could wash back onto the local councils because they're the ones that actually have to manage the collection of the waste, the sorting of the waste. And so the government could actually be very um, demanding in this regard and say, well, actually, no, you can't, we're not going to accept that waste. You've got to recycle it. So there could be an issue, particularly where councils have signed take or pay contracts right. with people developing these big facilities. So there are a lot of stakeholders involved in these sorts of things. And that also gives you a hint about why it hasn't happened yeah, right. up until now. Gotcha. There's risks. Easier yeah. to dump it in the tip. Yeah. It's classic, isn't it? Um, okay. And now, uh, you know, slightly different subject. Port Hedland is not just one of the world's busiest ports by volume in any, in any case, um, but it is also a harbour town where people live. Um, now, that's caused some conflict in the past. The government's trying to sort this out. This is a recurring theme around Western Australia. You look at you know, Esperance, Bunbury, Geraldton, Port Hedland, all places where the town has grown around the port. And, of course, that's why the town was there in the first place. Did you say Fremantle as well then? And, so, <laughs> and, and Fremantle, very much so. Uh, Port Hedland, of course, has grown more than most. Uh, in fact, the latest figures, they exported a bit over 500 million tonnes primarily of iron ore last year. Yeah, right. And anybody who's visited Port Hedland, first thing you're struck by is the red dust everywhere. Yeah. Now, it's partly a function of just being in the Pilbara, but it's also the fact that the iron ore stockpiles, particularly the older ones that were established years ago by BHP, are right next to the town, um, particularly down at the historic West End. And for quite a few years now, there's been concerns about the potential health impacts of that. Uh, now, this first sort of came up back in the boom years when the Port Hedland property market went through the roof. There was a shortage of accommodation and some developers, including uh, listed company Finbar, came out with plans to build apartments, some high-rise apartments, down near the west end of Port Hedland. Mm. That was when uh, the health department and the EPA and others stepped in and said, uh, hang on. I don't think this is where people should be living. Mm. And it's certainly not where we should be building new residential accommodation or having aged care facilities or childcare facilities or things of that kind. Now, the nature of these regulatory battles, um, it took a long time to resolve, but finally the government came out during the week and essentially said, um, down at that historic west end of Port Hedland, we don't want more residential development. And most people up there have accepted that. Um, they say, look, you know, the lifeblood of the town is the port. Yeah. We can't do things that are going to compromise the operations of the port and indeed the planned expansion of the port. Given it was there first, right? Well, that's right, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and BHP is looking to expand the tonnages they put through the port. Um, you know, others like Fortescue Metals, Roy Hill, I'm sure, you know, longer term, they have growth aspirations. Um, Chris Ellison's company, Mineral Resources, they are looking to develop a new wharf. They want to put 50 million tonnes through the port. Yeah. Plus um, they do manganese and the like through there already, right? And lithium. Yeah. So there's some other products that go through. Uh, 
Um, and look, for people that have visited, once you get away from that West End, there are other parts of Port Hedland, and then of course there's South Hedland, where which you know are developing. Yep. Um, so there are alternatives. But yeah, look, a really interesting case study on that, that tension between industrial development and, and residential development. Yeah, and it's interesting, the state government tackling it that way when, you know, like, for instance, I mean, it was during the election campaign, Mandogalup was an issue, wasn't it, where, you know, the property developers want to get closer to some of the industrial uh, areas at Quinana and, you know, and they don't like the fact that, that the industry wants to see that buffer zone expanded. Uh, and, and the debate is, well, how big is the buffer? How yeah. wide does the buffer need to be? Yeah, but of course the fear is that you you make some prescription, you make it too narrow, and in 10 years' time or generations' time, you've got people saying, it's we're too close, we need to move industry, and industry fears that, of course. And as an example of that, uh, Coburn Cement, Yes. Uh, their plant um, has been, this housing has encroached around that plant. Yeah. And now a lot of people that live near that plant are worried about the um, um, uh, the, the smells and the emissions and so on yeah, right. coming out of a long-standing industrial facility. Yeah, no, it, it worries me. And look, you know, the, the other kind of example in all this, which uh, always makes me laugh, is, you know, the pub that's been there forever and it's been playing music and someone builds some apartments nearby and one person complains and suddenly the lifeblood of the area, the, 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 the income stream for the pub and the the community offering is disappears. Yeah. So um, now, Mark, uh, the government is considering regulation of short-stay accommodation providers. I mean, I guess we're talking Airbnb specifically here. What are they thinking of? Yeah, a bit of a, a regulation theme today. Mm. Uh, look, the I mean, this is a debate around the world, and it's a bit like the Uber debate, where Uber comes along and upsets the established taxi companies. Airbnb has come along and has upset the existing, the hotel operators and other providers of accommodation. And quite a lot of cities around the world have cracked down on Airbnb and other providers of that like. Airbnb is, of course, the big one. The Australian Hotels Association came out a week or so ago with their five-point plan of regulating providers of short-stay accommodation. And what the timing was fascinating because about two days after that, there was a parliamentary inquiry established and the minister, Rita Safiotti, who's of course one of the most senior ministers in the state government, said she supports that inquiry. So it's got a lot of people thinking that uh, she's sympathetic to some of what the hotels lobby has been calling for. Yeah. So some of their suggestions... They're saying that only your primary residence can be used, um, can be listed for sharing. So you can't go and buy an investment property and use that as an Airbnb accommodation. They're also saying that you cannot list an entire property for less than 14 days. Um, They want to get the things like fire, safety, building code regulations and insurance requirements. They want that to be harmonised between, so if you've got your house for accommodation, there's a pub down the road, harmonised regulation. They want these places to be registered. They want them to be paying fees. Mm. So, you know, lots of paperwork and cost and limitations on what a lot of people are doing in this space. Now, it's one of those classics. You know, the market is telling us a very clear message. People love Airbnb. They love the choice. They love the flexibility. 
um, and you know, the, the traditional operators have had to lift their game, just like in the taxi industry. Yeah. So there's an inquiry underway. Um, you know, the government hasn't formally declared its hand, um, but you know, reading the tea leaves, there's certainly some sympathy, it would seem, towards more regulation. Yeah, look, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, obviously, the parallel with Uber is it's the sharing economy story. I guess there's there's a big difference here. Um, taxi industry <clears throat> was heavily regulated and supply was restricted through regulation. And Uber came, and you know, getting a taxi was difficult, they were expensive, they were, you know, poorly run. Uber's come and solved a problem. The, the hotel industry is different. There, there was, it's regulated, yes, to a degree, but there was never a restriction on supply other than the fact that, uh, you know, you, you obviously need to get um, planning permission to have uh, accommodation. Um, but again, uh, in some ways, this is a very retrospective reaction. I, I can understand if you're talking about maybe in Perth, where people are building apartment blocks and they're turning them into literally Airbnb blocks right next to somewhere where they've built a brand, and there are a lot of brand new hotels going in and, and existing hotels competing. I can, I can sort of sense that. And if you've got heavy fire regulations, very expensive to build that hotel versus different fire regulations and such in an apartment block where maybe having lots of comings and goings is an issue. But, you know, go down south, Mark, and people have been renting out their houses forever and a day down there. Uh, you know, the, what happens here? You, what you're going to absolutely disrupt an existing market. And yes, Airbnb is very popular, but people have always been able to do house swaps and things like that. So I'm a little bit dubious around the edges of this. I'm skeptical about some of the restrictions they're trying to put there. I do understand some of their concerns and I kind of share them a little bit. I think if I was living in an apartment block and everyone else has got Airbnbs running, that, that there's some other issues that come with residences there. So maybe there's some halfway point and maybe this inquiry will get us somewhere there. But I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm, a, I'm a free market person and I'm a big believer in Airbnb and I, and I don't see it quite the same clash as I did with Uber and the taxi industry. But I, I sense a bit of fairness somewhere in there and we'll just have to work it out. Good thoughts. Um, now, Mark, uh, unemployment fell 6% in WA to f- and 5% nationally. Uh, have you scratched the surface on what we know about that? Look, we've been discussing for quite some time concern about uh, labor sh- skilled labour shortages emerging in Western Australia um, as the mining sector starts to pick up again and against a backdrop where a lot of people are busily employed on the East Coast where there's that infrastructure boom going on. Yeah. We've now got to a point where some economists are asking themselves nationally, have we reached full employment? So this figure of 5% national unemployment rate. Yeah, right. Sydney, it's I think 4.4%, or New South Wales rather. Mm-hmm. So you know, below that, the, the general view is, well, look, there aren't really people who are either capable or qualified or available yeah. to work. Yep. So you're effectively at full employment. That then raises concerns about um, getting good people and then about wages pressure. But one of the intriguing things in the labour market is that wages growth continues to be very low uh, and people have been a bit perplexed by this to some degree. The Reserve Bank's done some work on this 
And they point to a couple of things. There's still a lot of people who consider themselves to be underemployed. So they're working part-time. They would love to do more work. So as demand for workers increases, they can actually work more hours. So in Western Australia, the latest survey says there's about 140,000 people who consider themselves underemployed. Yep. So that's a pool of talent that's still available there. The other thing that the Reserve Bank has found from their surveys is that employers have put in place things to keep their staff other than wage increases. So more flexible employment arrangements or bonuses or equity share schemes. Ah, yeah, okay, right. So people are finding other ways of retaining their good staff yeah. rather than giving them a big pay rise because uh-huh. they realise how you know, damaging it builds in long-term costs. Totally. It's, for, that's quite interesting, isn't it? So yeah. you, 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 you're cherry-picking a little bit, your performance, you know, doing it on performance, no doubt, and we don't see that in the numbers. All we hear is this, oh, people aren't getting enough work. Kind yeah. of fascinating. Or they're not getting pay rises. Well, you know... Flexibility or bonus is as good as, isn't it? So, so it's a very dynamic situation um, and, and quite fascinating to see how people are responding. Um, but in, so overall, though, Western Australia, 6% unemployment rate. It's one of the higher rates around the country, yeah. but in a historical context, still fairly low. Yeah, gotcha. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by, you know, the, the discussion that 45 or 5% could be considered full employment. I, I mean, I think we always, you know, from recollection, we kind of used to bandy around sort of 3% as a kind of a full employment, 3% unemployment represented full employment. So it's interesting that that number's getting pushed out, no doubt as, you know, obviously skills are one of those things. People increasingly in our society, they're just not employable because they don't have the skills where, you know, a couple of decades ago, they, they could find work. Hmm. Um, now, Mark, uh, here's a trend that not a lot of people would know about, I think. Uh, there's a whole bunch of Israeli tech companies seeking to list on the ASX via Perth-based dealmakers. Yep. So in our next edition, there's an article there with all the details. There's about a dozen Israeli companies yeah. that have listed on the ASX. And just about all of them have done so through Perth-based um, corporate advisors yeah. and broking firms. So firms like RM Corporate Finance, uh, Merchant Corporate, Otsana Capital, CPS Capital, they've been at the forefront of this trend. And it's and it's been happening over about three years. Um, and there's, there's, you know, there's two or three that have fallen by the wayside, but a lot of them have been successful and raised money. Yeah. Against a backdrop where people say, oh, look, there's not much money for tech in this country. Mm. The well, this this trend suggests otherwise. Yeah, um, especially know, we, on this side of the country too. Yeah, but look, we had a chat. So, for instance, Nathan Barberich, who runs RM Capital, yeah, like a lot of people, he'll tell you that you know, we've got a long history in this state of putting money into risky ventures, i.e., exploration companies. Yep. So there's a lot of punters out there who say, okay, I'll put a bit of money into a tech venture. Yeah. You know, it's sort of it's a it's a similar sort of risk reward calculation. Um, Israel, in fact, has a, a venture capital market, so pretty good place to get money to get started. Mm. But typically, these sorts of businesses they're looking for sort of five to ten million dollars 
to continue their growth. And they actually see the ASX as an attractive market to raise that sort of money. Um, Often too, there are businesses that have a global market, um, including an Asian focus. So having a a public listing also helps their profile. Um, So look, I think it's it's a great example of a, a niche opportunity that some very enterprising sort of corporate finance deal makers in Perth have uh, tapped into. Yeah, and look, you know, Israel's a pretty fascinating uh, market. It's got a startup culture. Um, it's got a tech culture. Uh, there's a marriage there between the, the Israeli army or the defence force and technology. So a lot of people develop, you know, they've got a lot of tech heads in, in the defence force and then they develop technology for defence and, and then find a way to turn that into something commercial. And that's historic, you know, the last... 10 or 20 years that's been pretty pretty interesting trend i guess that the 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 financial connection between australia and and israel especially perth and israel i mean i'm intrigued as to where how that's developed really more than anything else any clues um look i think in some of these cases it's personalities yeah um but there's also people that have sort of gone out of their way to to build links over there certainly the universities yeah. have been doing some work in that regard. And look, just to put some broad context around this, uh, the amount of money available for tech investments in Australia is minuscule compared to all the money that goes into mining and industry and other sorts of things. Sure. But nonetheless, let's not dismiss it out of hand, you know, and this is more evidence. A dozen Israeli companies have come here because yeah. they see it as the best place to come and raise money. No. And there's plenty of it's great. tech businesses in Australia that have have raised money and are still raising money. Mm. So it is there. There are opportunities. No, fascinating story. Thank you. Uh, now, our special report this week is on biggest exporters. Uh, what has Matt McKenzie, McKenzie found? Any surprises, Mark? Well, look, this is something we've been doing for 10-odd oh, years now, and it's about crunching the numbers and saying which companies sit behind um, Australia or Western Australia's export success. So look, the big names at the top of the list won't come as a surprise to the listeners. So Rio Tinto, and we do this on an operator basis. So all of the assets that Rio Tinto operates, primarily their iron ore mines, but they've also got Argyle Diamonds, they've got um, a salt operation. Um, $30 billion worth of exports Mm. came out of Rio's operations last year. Um, And that's been growing quite substantially. Uh, BHP is number two, about $24 billion. Um, other big ones, um, Gold Corporation, which runs the Perth Mint. Yep. So the way the gold industry works, every mining company basically sells their gold to the Gold Corp. They do the processing of it and export it. Yeah. So that's, if you like, the, the collective number for the gold industry. And, of course, that's not just WA, is it? That's coming from other states and even Papua New Guinea and things like that, I think. That's right, Yes. Um, Woodside Petroleum, so their numbers we incorporate both the Northwest Shelf Venture um, as well as their Pluto assets and their oil assets, you know, about 14 billion, so, so big numbers there. Um, but the other part that's changing is the growing exporters. So the, the two names that really stand out there, Chevron, yep. so they've got their Gorgon project where they're cranking up production there, um, as well as their Wheatstone gas project which is only at an earlier stage. Yep. So our expectation is that over the next two, three, four years, Chevron is going to be one of the biggest exporters 
um, from Western Australia. Mm. And then, of course, the other one is Roy Hill, the iron ore miner that's majority owned by Gina Reinhardt's company. Um, they're all, they've cranked up their production at their Roy Hill operation, about 55 million tonnes a year. So, you know, they did nearly $4 billion worth of exports last year, and that will probably grow as well. Yeah. Um, the other part, you know, a lot of the companies here, quite a few of them are listed companies on the ASX, so there's a fair bit of data readily available. But there's other ones that it's much harder to find the numbers, so people should find this fascinating. So we've got two big magnetite iron ore producers here. Which is, you know, the BHPs and the Rios, they dig it up and put it on a ship. Yep. The magnetite ore is heavily processed. Acidic Pacific Mining, um, their exports last year were worth about $2 billion. And Carrara Mining, they're in the Midwest near Geraldton, um, about $800 million. Yeah. So we've had to do a lot of digging around, getting some volume numbers and price figures and so on to do these estimates. But you know, it gives you an insight into the scale of those operations. Yeah, good work. Um, some other ones like Talus and Lithium um, and Tronox, big mineral sands producer. So we've sort of done some digging around. So we've got a fascinating list there of yeah. the biggest exporters in the state. So if you want to know who sits behind WA's export success, these are the names. Yeah, and, and I love the graphic representation. Obviously, listeners can't see that, but it'll be in the hard copy on Monday. And uh, that looks fantastic. And up on the website on Monday. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. Uh, tickets are now on sale to hear Managing Director of West Farmers Rob Scott as he discusses his approach to leading Australia's largest diversified conglomerate and his thoughts on the dynamic markets in which Australian businesses operate. He will be our guest for a breakfast event at the Hyatt on November 27. Just go to our website and search the events page or give us a call. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.